First name, Mr. Last name, Glass. Is it possible that there are no coincidences? I see dead people. Welcome back to Chronologically, M. Night Shyamalan. On this podcast, we go through the full filmographies of some of cinema's greatest creators. My name is Jeff, and with me, as always, is Eric. Hey, Jeff. How's it going today, man? Pretty well. Wasn't that smooth? Did you hear that? It was really good, and you I got it on the first try. You didn't have to start I, over. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Behind the scenes, uh, anyway. sometimes Jeff starts over. <laughs> yeah, a lot of times Jeff starts over. Jeff not good. Jeff try hard though. Anyway, we watched Unbreakable. Um, oh, speaking of starting over, I don't have my IMDb up. So if you want to talk about Unbreakable, when it was, all the goods, yeah, while I do that, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. So I don't have the date. I don't know. Uh, but it was the, the year two thousand. It was of course the year two thousand uh y2k and and uh so this was the follow-up to sixth sense which we discussed on our previous episode uh which was a massive massive success um and so there was a lot of anticipation around this film and i'm just going to go right into my history with the film because that's usually how we do things uh so as a sixth sense fan as somebody who saw it unspoiled i was massively hyped for this movie and uh, so this was an opening nighter for me. This was uh, I'm there on Friday night. This before they did Thursday showings. That's a more recent thing. So I was there on Friday night to, to see the movie with a big crowd in a big theater. And um, while while it worked for me and I you know the the twist was of course once again very effective. Nobody at this point the twist was not an established thing. Right, like Shyamalan the twist, thing. The, the twist yeah. happened in Sixth Sense, but we didn't know if it was going to be like an ongoing. Oh, there's going to be a twist, right? So when it happened again, it was it was again like, oh god, he got me again. This bastard, he got yeah. me again. That said, I didn't at in the moment feel like this movie was as strong as Signs. Like I wanted to love it, and there were things about you mean it. Sixth Sense, Sixth Sense, yeah, yeah. Uh, there were things about it that I loved, but. In the moment, I was kind of like, ah, felt a little slow, you know. But over the years, in the meantime, upon, you know, reflection and reviewings and DVD purchases and, uh, you know, like cable watchings and so on, uh, this movie has definitely grown in my estimation to the point where I now put it just about even with Sixth Sense, you know, like, like I, I, I'm not sure maybe it was the lack of horror elements, you know, that, that got me the first time, uh, that, that made me not appreciate it as much, but, but over the years I have come to appreciate it just as much as its own standalone classic, um, as, as the Sixth Sense. So what, what about you, Jeff? So I think this is actually the first M. Night Shyamalan film I ever watched. Like, I watched this before Sixth Sense because if you listen to back, you know, Sixth Sense was spoiled for me before I ever got a chance to see it. And so I did, wasn't in a hurry to do it. And when Unbreakable came out, it didn't really register with me that it was the same guy that did Sixth Sense. And I didn't necessarily have 
a particular affinity for it. But I watched Unbreakable and left amazed. I was like, this is the best thing. It is a terrestrial sort of story about an origin of a superhero as it would feel maybe in the real world. You know, like if if we actually had a superhero in the real world, this feels like David Dunn, what he he would be you know like that feels right and so i left the theater being like yes and so before we started this season and before our rewatch last week if you asked me what's my favorite Shyamalan movie it probably would have been unbreakable or or split i don't know but uh it i hold this film in a high high regard and going in after watching six cents i was a little concerned that it wasn't going to hold up, that I was going to leave, finish the film, be like, it was good, but man, it's kind of a letdown after six cents. I can happily report, as I sent a picture to Eric the other day, after the film, and I sent him a picture of my arm, which was covered in goosebumps, because this movie works for me on every single level still. It's still amazing. I I have to agree. I I finished it. My wife was kind of bopping in and out of the room. I watched it yesterday morning, um, and uh, the kids were at camp. I had some quiet time. My wife was kind of like coming in and out, shuffling around with the baby and stuff. And it ended, and I was like, man, for an hour and forty five minutes, and for like such a quiet movie, that movie it's just so... goes like it just flies yeah. by. You know, like the there's not a moment wasted in that movie. Like there was no point at all for all the whispered conversations and muted tones. There's not a moment in that movie where I was like, Oh, let me see what's going on on my phone. You know, like, like none of that, like it is so engaging the entire time and the way that it's like slowly kind of unfolds and pulls you into its story and just kind of just like, quietly makes revelations as it goes you know one after the other just quietly kind of shows uh you know and and pulls you deeper into its mythos i just it's so well done and so fascinating and and the ideas being expressed in the movie are so interesting you know yeah um that yeah And, and, and not to mention you've got Bruce Willis and Sam Jackson, right? Both of whom were at the height of their popularity at the time that this was made, the height of their acting powers, you know, like uh, they were previously seen together in Die Hard with a Vengeance. I don't know if, you, if you're if you a fan of that film, but it's a pretty fun Die Hard movie. It's kind of breaks yeah. the Die Hard mold a little bit, but it's pretty fun. Um, and so it was interesting to see them together again in this very different context, you know, and, uh, I don't know. I it, It's been a while since I watched it. And so there was kind of one of those, like the sixth sense, one of those feelings where like I'd forgotten bits of it. And uh, so some of it was kind of like seeing it again for the first time. You know, I absolutely forgot that Robin Wright was in this movie. Had no totally. idea. And she totally. showed up like she showed up in the credits and I was like. God, is she the wife? And she looks so different in this movie. I'm used to House yeah. of Cards Robin right now, you know? I'm used to, like, yep. tall, short, blonde hair, statuesque Robin Wright. And, and now I, in this- I think had you not cued me in, I would have been sitting in the film being like, damn, she looks familiar. Who is that? Who is and then I'd woman? eventually pull it up and be like, 
Oh shit! Is Robin? Yeah, yeah, totally. yeah. She's kind of like right in between Princess Bride and House of Cards, right? Like this is like the halfway point, and uh, and and so yeah. And once I locked in on who she was, I was like, man, she's she's actually really good in this movie. You know, it's it's not a lead role, but it is uh, a pretty good and convincing performance of this woman who you know her marriage is kind of falling apart and she's kind of like recommitting herself to try to work on it. And she has these very definite views on violence and, and so on and so forth to the extent that our hero has kind of turned away from any sort of physicality uh, that he had in his youth to the point where he has failed to even register that he has certain abilities that other people don't have. Like his, his commitment to his wife is so strong, you know, that, that he has completely, uh, you know, blinded himself to his own condition. And, and, and I don't know, it's, it's a really interesting dynamic between the two of them. Um, I saw one, uh, analysis online that I super don't agree with and it came off as kind of misogynistic but it said that in some ways the Robin Wright character is his kryptonite right like basically she is what is keeping him from uh registering his powers and coming to the fruition of of who he really is um and I thought like that's an interesting take, but the guy wrote it in kind of a shitty way, and so <laughs> I wasn't really into it. But it yeah. is it is an interesting look at their dynamic, right? Because he was this uh, super amazing football player, you know, coll- collegiate star, and then he has this car accident with with his wife to be, and he takes that as the opportunity to like feign injury and to kind of t- turn his back on all of his physical abilities, you know, and, and kind of just engage in this relationship with her because she does have very strong feelings about, uh, violence. And, you know, she doesn't like football because it's too violent and da, 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 da. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know. It is, it is an interesting reason why he never quite, you know, reached his potential in his youth, you know, or didn't realize you know, he he thought he was a very talented football player. He didn't realize that he was somewhat limitless, you know? Yeah. Uh, I Yeah, I'm just going to disagree with the idea that she's his kryptonite. I think in a lot of ways, uh, yeah, she's the reason he... He's his own reason for not discovering his own powers or realizing it. But, um, yeah, he's just making life choices for the benefit of his family, which is something we all do. Absolutely. But, yeah, I think that's a much yeah, a much I, better take. Yeah. Y- yeah. Um cuz he does have a kryptonite uh even to the they even call it out which is he can drown essentially um which works for me. Uh so the one thing is the f- cinematography in these films is always so amazing and like the opening scene of him on the train with the woman and you're seeing it all from this little girl's perspective that you almost forget you're watching her perspective as she looks down at his ring finger as he takes off his wedding band and pans back and forth between he now you mentioned the the 
cinematographer would be the John Williams to M. Night Shyamalan, uh, you know, as, as John Williams to Spielberg is as the cinematographer is Sakujimoto, to M. Night Shyamalan. Yeah. yeah. Um, I didn't realize that there was someone else calling those shots in a lot of ways. Can, can, can you get into that a little bit for me? I actually didn't look into it too much on this film. In fact, I'm not even a hundred percent sure that Tak Fujimoto was, was the cinematographer on this film. Uh, if you no, have... it was Eduardo Serra. Okay. So no, it was not the same guy okay. as, as the sixth sense. Um, that said, I would imagine like just due to the visual language shared between these two films, you know, I don't think, somebody else is calling the shots i think they might be delivering the shots you know like in a collaborative way um it's funny you mentioned the little girl and i i it hadn't even registered with me until this very moment when you mentioned her i wanted to talk about the the upside down motif that's used throughout this film where characters are shown okay. upside down and i completely forgot until you just mentioned that that she's the first one she's the first one that's shown upside down the little girl is like kind of like doing a weird little thing in her seat and yeah. flipping herself upside down um we'll get back to that in a bit but yeah i think that train scene is uh really stellar it, it establishes a lot you know in you see him slip off his ring, right? And uh, he's going to talk to this woman. And at that point in the film, you don't really, like, you're kind of thinking, is this a bad dude? Like, is this guy, like, cheating on his wife? Like, what's what's going on with this guy? You know, like, are we already right out of the gate establishing him as, like, a, a questionable moral character? And it turns out that, no, not really. Like, he and his wife are divorcing. They're kind of separating. He's taking the train back because he was on a job interview because he's moving away from his family because, you know, marital troubles and so on and so forth. So he's kind of in the he's kind of in the clear <laughs> on, on uh, you know, hitting on this woman. Kind of. Kind he of. was still wearing his wedding band. They still are legally married. Right, right. So, so maybe yeah. it softens it a little bit, but it's still like little iffy you made a promise you know well like, and, you made and a it comes into play later <laughs> in the movie when his wife you know gives that whole you can tell me it won't affect me the answer won't affect me you know like have you been with anybody else it won't affect me whatever your answer is and when he says no she just completely breaks like it totally yeah. impacts her so had he you know gone through with you know hitting on this other woman and following through and so on it would have just devastated his wife so there is definitely like an emotional connection still at play there and he doesn't know it in the moment but she is couching her reconciliation on what his answer is right like if he had said yes i have been with somebody else her next actions might have been very different from what they were absolutely you know so kind of interesting yeah But, but back to the train like it's so well done in such an old Hollywood way and it establishes this film's commitment to not be sensational, right? Like just enough is shown that you can tell that something is really, really wrong, but it doesn't show the, it doesn't show the crash, right? We don't get the super eight moment with the crash. And I don't know many filmmakers who would be able to resist showing that crash with a big special effects, you know, sequence. And, and it just kind of, 
it just sets the tone for the whole movie. Like this is not that movie, you know. This is this is not it. It, it makes me think about how lost this sort of movie is in this day and age, right? Like how many how many films come out now? that wouldn't show that crash you know right you know, that, that it's all about the special effects right it's all about the yeah. special effects for 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 better or for worse like i i love special effects movies too but like audiences came in droves to sit in these quiet films and watch these quiet movies unfold like there is an audience for this sort of more thoughtful measured telling of this type of story and i don't know like that that just really i think sets the tone and then it goes right into the next scene which is like classic m night whispered scene between you know our hero and the doctor and there's yeah. a guy like dying in the foreground right <laughs> and all you see is on the bottom part of the, the little screen, blood that little pool of blood forming underneath the bandages and uh i don't know it's it's just so it's so good it's just so good. Yeah, that, you know, in the whole unraveling of, you know, why are you asking me these questions? Well, only two people survived, and it looks like in a couple of minutes, only one person will have survived, and you don't have a scratch on you. And I remember that in the trailer, and that was it in the trailer, if I remember correctly, that this guy was on a train wreck, he's the only guy that survived, and that was the pitch of the movie. Yeah. And that was it. And then you're like, shit, I got to find out what's happening. And it's the the light-handedness that Shyamalan has been able to show early in his career, which I think kind of takes a turn later on, and he's not as you know light on the the pitch. You know, it tends to be more blah, like everything at the wall with his pitch. But in this, like, it just is enough of a mystery to draw you in. And in a movie about comic book characters being real, to remain as steady and even keel as this does and and try to keep it believable as possible, I think it it's masterfully done. Um, yeah. I can't wait to watch Split. Yeah. The, <laughs> I know. I, can't right? wait. I know. Yeah. <laughs> the comic book thing is, you know, like, I think it was wise to keep that out of the pitch of the movie like i i, Absolutely. I, I think lone survivor of terrible train wreck is enough of a hook that like i know it got me into the theater yeah i was in you know um so i think i think had they gone for the one, one thing about trailers these days is they just show way too much the goddamn movie for like, sure way yeah. too much and so that was so i can even point out Specifically, M. Night Shyamalan's Cabin in the Woods, whatever it's called. Knock at the door. Knock at the cabin. The first trailer comes out. And, of course, I'm hooked anyway because it's M. Night Shyamalan, but it was a good trailer. There was this group that shows up to a cabin with a family, and you know something's wrong. That's enough of a hook. But then the second trailer came out, and it gives away, like, so much of the plot where I'm like, that mystery would have been so much more fun to see in the film and i know that a lot of times directors don't have control over the trailers they're made by separate companies but it's like come on man it m night Shyamalan's the name that's gonna get people to go see the film just give us a little bit let us know who directed it and we'll go see the movie do you ever uh engage in like trailer blackout 
Like, are there ever oh. films where you like, and, unless you happen to be in the theater and it happens to come on, like, do you ever like shut shut yourself down from all the press coverage? Because I anything I totally I'm do. planning, anything I'm going to see anyway. Yes, like if it's a Marvel film, I don't want to know. Yeah, don't want to know. I'll just go see it. And then like uh, the most recent, um, I just saw Mission Impossible the other day. And I didn't see any trailers because I didn't care. I was going to go watch it. And and it allowed me to go into the film knowing nothing. I didn't know who was in it. I didn't know what was going to happen. And it was beautiful. So, yeah, I, I'm on a perpetual trailer blackout, especially actually after that knock of the cabin fiasco, because I'm going to see Shyamalan movies anyway. I don't need to see the trailer. Yeah. Yeah, what's very frustrating to me is this recent phenomenon of spoilers in the headlines of my news feed. It makes me bonkers. Like, first showings of the movie are Thursday night. And Friday morning, goddamn spoilers are showing up in the headlines. Like, it's not even like spoilers to be in that one movie. Yeah, it's like, God damn it. It's like, right? It's I, I couldn't avoid it. Like, yeah. My brain reads the words, you know, <laughs> I can't not see that. And it is so frustrating. Like, I'm not a super yeah. a, like I'm not a person who screams no spoilers on the Internet. You know, like I'm not like one of these militant crazies about spoilers. But that makes me bonkers if I, you know, if I'm not in the very first crowd to see the movie on Thursday night, it's considered fair game to spoil the whole fucking movie. You know, yeah. like that's not cool. You know, yeah. It's, yeah, we're off topic, but I agree. You know, it's frustrating. Make your make your trailers. If your movie's good enough, give us the pitch, and then that's all we need. You know, I, I like. Uh, yeah, I, I'm on board. Yeah, so like, comic books come into play in the movie, but I don't know if I would consider it like a quote comic book movie. I would say maybe like a superhero movie, but. Even that is a little fraught with this film, you know, like. Uh, yeah, it is a it's definitely comics do come into play. But it, and it's obviously not a comic book movie because there's no comics that this is being based, based on. on. Yeah. Um, but it is using comics as, or at least Elijah, the character that. Samuel Jackson plays uses comics because it was as someone who was bed riddled um, often just in hospitals like comics was his escape and so that became his whole world and so to understand his world you know he uses comics and then it kind of is the catalyst for everything that's about to happen so I don't consider it a comic book movie I do consider it it's hard to even say a superhero movie because that final fight between the bad guy and the is not a superhero fight. No, no, it's he not. He grabs the guy and he chokes him out and breaks his neck. And it is, it is no fisticuffs. There's no like choreography. No, he just he, ju- he, he just does, stays on him and chokes him out. Yeah, yeah, until he's dead. And it's very real. And I think that that's what when I'm watching that scene, not to jump to the end, I'm like, I want another David Dunn movie where he's doing this very what's the term 
terrestrial superheroing. Like just he when he ro- stops a bank robbery, you know, it's different. It's not him swinging in like Spider Man. He, you know, he just kind of goes in and does his thing and then leaves, you know, and goes back to his home. So I, I really appreciated that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think like. The reason the comic books are so vital is because they are the lens through which Eliza Elijah analyzes his reality, right? Like, uh, because even he talks about the comic books as a continuation of like the mythos of humanity, you know, like storytelling passed down through generations, you know, like you, you hear a lot about like verbal storytelling before writing, you know, and how these legends were passed down from generation to generation around the campfire. And this, like, he's kind of talking about the continuation of uh, hieroglyphics and cave drawings and, you know, like that sort of thing. And that there, there have been in his view, extraordinary people throughout the history of humanity. And that comic books are our culture's way of kind of translating those like Hercules stories, for example, you know, like there have always been stories of great heroes, you know, and and comic books are basically our culture's way of expressing this idea, but it all comes down to him grappling with his own situation, right? Like his whole deal is that he needs somebody at the other end of the spectrum to justify his own situation, not justify, but explain, help make sense of his own situation because he sees, I think he even describes it as his place, not knowing you, who you are and your purpose and why you exist is for him the worst thing yeah right? he kind of says something along those lines at the end of the film and and because his understanding is through comics his way of finding that is finding his antithesis right right he's like he sees humanity on a spectrum right so picture like a rainbow and at one end of the rainbow is elijah who just like breaks at the slightest touch right and then at the other end of the rainbow at the other end of the spectrum is is david dunn uh, who, you know, can't be broken, right? And if he can find the existence of David Dunn at the other end of the spectrum, that means that he's on the spectrum too, right? Like, th- that means that he is a part of humanity. He is a naturally occurring phenomenon. He's not a freak, you know? Like, he's a part of the I whole, and that's his, that's his role think- to play. For him, it makes him special because now, because before I can't play with the kids going outside is risky, even though his mom does a really great job of saying, you can't live like this. You can't live in fear and stay inside all day. And I think that his mom is great in this movie because she does what I think a, a, a good mom would do for a kid that has his ailment and saying, Sure, you got to be careful, but you don't have to stay inside all day and even encourages him to cross the street to get his comic book every day. Um, And and so I think for him, though, he's someone who sees himself initially as less than 
But once he establishes that he is on this other end of the spectrum from uh, David Dunn, he is sort of escalates himself and he becomes um, super in his own way. You know, it justifies his existence in that way and his own intelligence and the way he looks at the world and sees himself as now I have a purpose because there's this guy who is uh, definitely special and I'm here to be the opposite of him and, you know, spoilers, be his his supervillain, his arch nemesis. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, he never gets a chance to be an arch nemesis because he goes into the clink. <laughs> Well, well, we'll see. Oh, well, yeah, exactly. exactly. We'll see. In the, in the context so, of this when, movie. Yeah. Gets so that. at this time, when we first saw this film, this was it, right? One and done. No pun intended. And you, you move on. Yeah. And uh, while we will, as we know now, see these characters again, um, we didn't know it at the time. And so, yeah, he, he just goes to jail. Well, but you and I both know if you've read comics, though, Super villains don't stay in jail. That is right. So I want to, I want to continue that train of thought about like the two ends of the of the, of the spectrum and okay. what you were saying because it's not enough for Elijah to find David Dunn. He needs David Dunn to accept himself as a hero, right? Like it, it's not enough to find this person that has these abilities and that can't you know be hurt in these tragedies he also needs him to do heroic acts right like because somebody who is super powerful who just works a security job is not a worthy nemesis right yeah <laughs> you gotta have somebody out there saving people and so that's the crux of of like the second half of the movie is like getting david to come to terms with the fact of who he is and then like kind of come at the right angles and push at the right buttons to get him to act on it. Like it a believe it, which is a hard enough ask. Right. And then B go out into the world and do a heroic thing. Right. Which is yeah. like oh, oh, way beyond just getting him to believe it. And, uh, and, and that's, you know, when he feels like, all right, now we're at the point where the games can begin, you know, and I'm going to tip my hand. I'm going to reveal who I am and, uh, you know, and and let the games begin. I'm your joker, you know. Uh, yeah. And and so the one of the things that happens to David Dunn is is he isn't he's depressed. Frankly, he wakes up in the morning and he feels sad and, you know, Elijah thinks that's because he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's supposed to be heroic. He's supposed to be doing these things. And I, and then after, you know, he does his heroic act at the end of the film, you could tell that the family dynamic improves. He and his wife are getting along. There's a little more sunshine creeping into the kitchen in the morning. Um, and I think that's the thing. He's like, yeah, okay. This is what now he feels more awake in himself He's able to love his family better. Um, so it is kind of interesting that it does like this world as Elijah understands it is correct. Yeah. You know, he's right on just about everything uh, in, in regards to David Dunn. Yeah. there I, I uh, saw an interesting take 
that another one that I don't necessarily agree with that said that essentially by freeing David Dunn from like the psychological shackles that he was in, Elijah might have done more good for the world than harm because now the world has a hero that it didn't have before. Like more like a, like the ends justify the means sort of thing. And I was kind of like, well, no, that's a real shitty take, but it is an interesting thought. You know? <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know because that guy blew up a train. Right, he blew he up burned a plane. down a building, <laughs> dropped a plane. So David has saved two people by the end of this film. Right. And there's several hundreds dead. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so exactly. It's gotta be a lot of work ahead of him for David to catch up. Yeah. Now, uh yeah, so I don't no, I don't buy that. But um So the scene where he goes and saves the <laughs> saves the kids. I was considering showing this to my kids, you know, and I'd kind of forgotten about that sequence. Yeah. And I watched yeah. that sequence and I was like, Oh no. No, no, we're not showing well, this. Well even to the before kids. that, when he bumps into the college student. Oh yeah. And there's the the girl passed out at the party, I'm like, whoa. And I like that he comes. You come back to the real time after he sees that vision, and he sees that kid being welcomed by his parents. Exactly, and it's very wholesome. Hey, he's back, you know. And I was like, "Oh, that's that's a good piece of just real world storytelling." Of you don't know what people have who, done. Yeah, right. Yeah, and um, yeah, it is interesting when you think about the. Uh, the toll that it would take on somebody to stand in the middle of that room and let all those people touch him and to, like see the horrible things that people have done and not be able to address them. Right. Like, it's not like he can just go beat that kid's ass, even though he knows right. that kid raped that girl. Like that ship has sailed. That is done, you know? And uh, you know, that's not something he's going to be able to address. Um, and, and like, if one were to do that on a regular basis, uh, I think you would really lose faith in reality very quickly, much like working retail. You would very, <laughs> like very quickly. <laughs> we're in a call center. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I, what do you, like, what do you, I would have appreciated in this film, and this is a joke, if he had touched someone and they just see him, you know, watching the hub and it's like, that's the worst thing this guy's done is. <laughs> Watch a little porn. <laughs> he's all right. You know, just, uh, all right, he's fine. Step you know, <laughs> or like a guy steals a pack of gum when he's 10. You're like, damn, he didn't get up to much. Yeah. But the, the sequence where he does go and free the kids, like I was really surprised at kind of how hardcore that sequence is, you know, like just. The, and yet isn't, is, right? Is, it is, does. But the guy standing there drinking the beer and just spitting it on the dead mom. I was like, Jesus Christ. And yeah. you don't even realize at that point that she's dead. Right. Right. You and think he's still just kind of tormenting. He's just tormenting her. Yeah. And then like when when David finally comes in and cuts her free and she just slumps over like that. I was like, oh, shit. That is dark, man. That's like, like I pitch think black it's, dark. Yes, but it's as tasteful as he could possibly be i think i guess so yeah it just because i think it is but he shows you and like we talked about at the beginning of the film he shows you only what is necessary 
Yeah. Right. It doesn't at any point become exploitive. It is not. Um, it is not. I think it's more like this. That's just something that kind of uh, triggers me a little bit. Not for any reason in my life. Like, yeah. uh, have you ever read any of the Thomas Harris Hannibal Lecter books? No. Like there are some sections in those books that are super dark like that. Like like somebody yeah. breaking into a house and torturing the family and, you know, yada, yada. And uh, it's just something that always just kind of gives me like the willies you know like i don't like home invasion stuff i don't oh, yeah. like, like it's too real it's too real yeah it's too real of a horror movie to me like the, the, i've never seen the strangers oh, and i don't totally ever plan on it. funny games another one you know like yeah. it's, it's like really like ah, i don't like it don't like it you know I, I like when a horror movie ends i go ah good thing jason Voorhees doesn't actually exist right and then i go home you know <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, needless to say I'm not going to be showing this to my my younger kids anytime soon. Without that sequence, well, without the the part where he decides to go fight crime, you know, maybe I would. But it, it also but shows God, like like you're so saying important. it's so real world, you know, like it is it is well, a, and what then, a like, real world superhero would be faced with, right? Our world yeah. is darker than a comic book world. There's not people you know like gangs robbing banks and people yeah, doc ock people invading hasn't the, ever yeah yeah exactly yeah doc ock does like global i'm gonna blow up the earth which for some reason seems at least in comic books less you know <laughs> real and so what what you're talking about too is this movie is so quiet throughout the whole of the film and i think this is a very good direct follow-up to the sixth sense because there's a lot of scenes in that that little kitchen sitting at the dinner table and they get kind of tense at times, much like the sixth sense. There's a lot of parallels in the, that so much of the storytelling takes place in that kitchen setting in that little homey, small kitchen. Um, Very realistic family dynamics at play in both of these movies. Yeah. Yeah. And so the movie is quiet throughout the most of it, but then you get to that end sequence and he's in the pool and the swell of the music starts kicking up as he's falling in the pool. And if, and I remember, I hadn't seen this in a little while, but I remember like, I kind of, that didn't come off as scary as it, but in this viewing, you see the tarp kind of roll around him as he sinks into the pool. And I'm like, Oh shit. Like I, I started thinking, okay, no, that is dangerous where he is and what he's dealing with right now. I think is dangerous. Yeah. You know, that tarp shot, like that's a great shot. Yeah. And it, to the point where it made me wonder like how, how did they film that safely? You know, because wrapping somebody up in a tarp like that and sinking them in a pool, like the only thing I could think of is that they had guys with ropes on all sides of the tarp. And after they filmed it, they all pulled it taut again and like popped them back out. But, uh, yeah, it, it, that, well, we don't know how, how deep that pool was exactly like in cinema. It could have been, you know, just deep enough and you know, he could stand up easily, but I, I think the shot worked for me. And then you see the pole come in the water and it kind of looks like Elijah's cane. And you're like, Oh, did he follow him there? And then you pull it out and you see it's the kids he's already saved. And as he stands up out of the water and he's wearing his poncho, which is his super suit and the water's dripping off of him and the music swells up and you get that first heroic, theme yeah. musical theme i'm like oh shit like that to me is like 
the first of two sets of like really good goosebumps that I got watching this. And it just, because the movie is so quiet when it does decide to raise its voice, you, you are on alert and it's quite good. Oh, it's on evil janitor guy. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Oh, and then like he's in there and you said the scene where he's spitting the beer and you see David Dunn come from behind almost in a reverse horror movie sort of way. Right. That shot is a lot of times, your your innocent bystander is in the foreground and then behind you see the shadow moving up but in this it's the flip side and it just works so effectively yeah yeah it's it's a great sequence and it leads to of course the the end because you know he reveals to his son that he was the hero and then he goes and and he goes to the actual event at Elijah's place, and that's when Elijah tips his hand. And much like well, Sixth Sense, I like it. Well, just let's pull ends. back just one sec. All right, all right, all right, one sec, one sec, one sec. Because his mom is there. Elijah's mom is there, and she's talking to him about the comics and explaining what she's understood that Elijah's kind of taught her about comics, and she appreciates his hobby. and And while this is an extreme case, and it turns into him to being a supervillain, but in a lot of ways, I still like. Do you think his mom is a good mom? Oh God, yeah. I think she's a great she's mom. Awesome. Yeah. No, yeah. Elijah's she's... mom is awesome. It's just that some sort of circumstances happen, or this guy's predisposed because I I do watch some true crime stuff, and there's this stuff about this teenage kid the parents couldn't get under control, and me as the snooty uppity dad, I'm like, you know what I would done? I would have done that, and then the parents do that. I'm like, oh well, after that I would have done this, and then the parents do, and he's just still a bad seed anyway right yeah and i and i get to the point i was like maybe sometimes they're just they're just bad and um because i think she does so much for her son to have him live his best life um what he chooses to do with that is his own damn fault yeah yeah i mean like this is somebody who is hyper intelligent and constantly tortured Right. Like, yeah, like living under constant pain and has a, a definite like feeling of injustice in the world, you know, like. And so she says something in this scene. She goes, oh, oh, he's like, hi, I'm David Dunn. She goes, oh, Elijah talks about you. He says you guys are becoming friends. And he's like, yeah. And it's this very wholesome moment. Right. Before the twist where he's like, yeah, we are becoming friends. I, I like Elijah. He's taught me about myself and it's helped my marriage and it's put me in a much better place. Elijah's one of the good guys. And so it like sets up all the pins for you to be bowled over here in a moment. Yeah, it, it really does. Like it just in the last minute. I mean, the movie, the movie is carefully kind of putting the pieces in place throughout the film. But that last segment, like you said, it really does like you know, put all the tinker toys together in a neat little house so it could drop a bowling ball on them. (laughs) It's really quality. Uh, But I, I wanted to say again, like six cents after, after the, the twist, it just stops. Like it is very, uh, that really struck me about the Hitchcock movies as well. The way they just stop, like just end, you know? And, uh, and this is very much the, the same good way. ones do. Some of them don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're like notorious just stops and it's wonderful. Psycho lingers a little too long, but you know, you know a little conversation with the cop and all that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so we get like, so you get the point where 
Elijah does his last bit of questioning. So I saw in the newspaper, was the sadness gone this morning? Yes, it was. And he's, well, this is where we shake hands. And then you realize, oh, they haven't touched throughout the whole film. And you get all the flashbacks of the train being set up, of the building, uh, of him getting the information of how to, uh, you know, set some arson in this building that would cause everyone to die. Of uh, what was the other thing? The plane being rigged to blow up. And you find out he's set up all the bad things in order for him to find the one unbreakable man. Now, did you see uh, the, all the newspaper clippings? Because there's I way, did, there's there way were... more than just those three instances. Did you think that those were things that he was following? Or do you think that those were things that he had a hand in? Like how much? Of I a think he was following those okay. because he tended, he gave up throughout the film the other three incidents. Yes, he did. He mentioned them. It, yeah, it, he mentions them in, in in several scenes, and so those are the ones I think he obviously did because the film tells you that, and David Dunn doesn't see anything beyond that, and so I do think they are ones where he's like, oh, that that's a lone survivor. And he clipped the paper and maybe did some research. Ah, oh, that guy's leg broke. Okay. And then he moves on. I, you know, so I didn't think he just been doing terrorism for years and years, but just, um, just recently. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So one of the things that I love is Elijah's character dresses like a supervillain. He's got the long coats with the cane, the purple, which is Samuel Jackson's favorite color, right? Like he wanted a purple lightsaber. We all know that the man loves purple, but it works so good here. He gets his purple present. But the moment where I'm like, I should have known he was the supervillain is when he gets into his car and he has all that black padding around. It looks like a car that Penguin would have driven right. <laughs> in the in the Burton films. Like it just feels like a super villain's car. And I loved it. I love his outfit when he's a kid. When he uh, when he's unwrapping the present, he's got the purple shirt and like the stripy Ronald McDonald pants, and it feels yeah. super nineteen seventies, but still kind of like hints at his nature. Uh, yeah, pretty pretty fantastic. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the son, uh, Joseph. Is that his name, uh, Joseph? Sure. Um, <laughs> I'll find out. Another uh, another yes, Joseph. Pr- pretty good kid performance right he's not being asked to do as Spencer much here treat clark yeah as, as much here as the sixth sense kid was but still you know he goes through he goes through some stuff right in in the film and uh the the thing i was talking about earlier with the upside down motif joseph and elijah kind of share a common goal throughout the film right like they are both trying to convince david dunn that he's a hero and just the fact that david brought joseph with him to meet elijah this fateful moment like essentially is what tips the scales because Elisha doesn't know it, but Joseph is working behind the scenes on the same thing, right? And that's what I found so interesting about the upside down thing, because both of those characters are shown upside down 
throughout the film right like when he's lifting weights and the kid's head kind of pops over the bar and he's upside down and and when elijah first sees the comic book and it's upside down and there's that stellar camera twist you know where it kind of like Mm -hmm. flips flips around the comic um and and uh, a couple more instances where both of those characters are shown and i i i don't want to draw too much of a parallel to him because the kid isn't uh, obviously is not evil right but he is willing to go there to prove his point much like elijah like yeah to risk his dad's health and not only not only the gun scene but the weightlifting one that could have gone seriously wrong right? you know because there was just a guy last sh- night there was just a famous bodybuilder fitness guy last night who fucking dropped a barbell on his own neck and died i was reading about it on yahoo today <laughs> like like yeah it could have gone horribly horribly wrong and the kid's yeah. just like sneaking more weight onto his uh onto his dad's barbells which in the theater played like gangbusters like like another fantastic kind of quiet scene that just has the audience just wrapped up you know like when, when the kid's like i added more and then he's the, the point where uh david dunn says what else can we use you know this yeah. <laughs> you see the paint cans like this roar went through the crowd you know like just like simple storytelling you know with these images and it like totally works but uh but yeah the kid is willing to risk his dad to prove his point you know like he's gonna shoot yeah. him he's gonna shoot his dad um and i wanted to ask you what you thought like what would happen if he had shot him like at this point it's schrodinger's cat right like you don't you don't know right but what do you think well, would have happened i think based on the rules that the world establishes um it would not have hurt him yeah i think he would have been blown back i think he would have had the air knocked out of him and he would have got up and he would have rightly taken his son to woodshed i you just you can't i don't care how sure that kid was because he wasn't right yeah like at the end of the why not slow down a little bit go get yourself a kitchen knife i was gonna say cut him with the knife you, just, yeah, just, just, just slow stick down him, stick him a little bit <laughs> like <laughs> or, the you know have him go get some sort of injection somewhere and if they go to put the pin the the injection in and it bends then hey I think we've got something here. Yeah, I think he escalated a little too far, but also he is a kid, you know. Well, that's and- just it. Like, you have to kind of wonder what the what the rules are, what the levels of invulnerability are here, right? Because as a comic book guy, you, know, you want to find the rules. You want to find the edges. You want to know what yeah. can and cannot hurt this guy. So, like, can he be cut? Can somebody inject something into it? Is it just his bones? Like, is is he just the opposite of Elijah in bone sense? You know, he obviously no, because has strength, if we go back, right? to the train right the 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 train wreck establishes no scratch on every single person on that train died and he walked away without a scratch so his skin is impermeable but you have to imagine he's had injections at some point in his life did he just not get shots like has he we don't know how he was raised you know (laughs) true (laughs) i don't know uh you would think but um that would be a bit of a a thing where maybe he he yeah but he never got sick so i don't know i mean because even when you're and i don't know about when he was young but you know every year on my son's checkup he has to get some sort of injection of some kind you right. know so you would think he would know 
but eh, I don't care. I let that go away. That doesn't bother yeah, me. Yeah, well, we'll just let it slide. <laughs> let it yeah. slide. Because the rest of the movie is so good and it just doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. I So we're two movies in, and I know we're more than two movies in, but honestly, in in Shyamalan proper, we're two movies in. Yes. And I'm loving this. I'm loving this so much, so much more than the previous two seasons. Just like I, I am so looking forward for what is to come. And after finishing this film, because I went in being like, I think Shyamalan's my favorite director. And right now I'm like, this is my guy. I love his shit. It's so good. <laughs> so I am uh, sort of on cloud nine right now, maybe feeling like a lot of the, the people did back in the early 2000s, like this guy could do no wrong. And signs comes out. They're like, Oh my God, he's on top of it. Village comes out. Some people are like, I don't know. And some people are like, I don't know. I still kind of like it. And then lady in the water comes out and they're like, shit. But right now I'm, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. Yeah, yeah, I I am feeling much the same. It's interesting you said about signs because I know there are a lot of signs haters out there. Like they like signs, I don't signs, acknowledge them. signs was the point where <laughs> some people like fell off, which to me is bonkers, absolutely bonkers. We'll get to signs when that we movie get to signs. Is so but, good, yeah, yeah. So yeah. let me ask you this: just because like throughout the context of our podcast conversations, we've never had a chance to talk about this, and we likely will not again. Are you a comic book guy? Yeah. Um, I Well, so I grew up with the cartoons. So the, the Spider-Man and, of course, Batman with the, the Kevin Conroy and um, uh, Mark Hamill Joker and then the X-Men series. So, yes. And then I didn't get into Well, and so all the time you were spending reading novelizations of films you couldn't go see. I was reading books, novels written about Spider-Man and all these things back. Uh, like if you want a suggestion, there's one uh, called what savage beast about Hulk, which is written by Peter David, which is fantastic. Ooh, I like Peter David. Uh, That's funny. It's really good book, at least from what I remember. And then there's one from Michael Jan Friedman called uh, redemption of the silver server, which is really good. So there's these books that was like my comics. I didn't actually, cause comics are kind of expensive. Like for what you get, the you get 20 minutes of entertainment for what kind of amounts to the price of a book now you know yeah um i and so but and then when i uh, became an adult and marvel movies started being a thing i'm like i want to read comics and i started getting into it so i started reading the miles morales one because that was new at the time and i could start from the beginning and that's when I kind of got into comics and uh, I've since kind of stopped reading them as much because they are expensive still. Uh, they're more expensive than ever, but uh, occasionally I'll open an app and see what's on prime and, and, and maybe read a comic or two. Yeah. I was going to say, might I recommend the library app on a Kindle <laughs> because you can get like graphic yeah. novels, you know, like big swaths of comics there, you know, uh, well, I bought some like on humble bundle. They'll have like, usually oh, they're indie yeah. comics. I got the whole run of star like Trek a, comics on humble bundle. Like it's enormous. Yeah. I'm still not done with them. I have it for like five years and there's like so much stuff in there. Those humble bundle comic things are the best man. Yeah. You can't see, but I do have like a short box over there behind me, which you can't see. And then I've got yeah. a long box and, uh, because I did, I got deep into it for a few years, um, but then realized that spending thirty dollars a week on comics was just 
I couldn't I couldn't do it. Yeah. I I uh I was a big comic kid. Um, my we didn't have a comic store very close, so my comic purchases were limited to uh, what was at the the drugstore near my house and the Seven Eleven near my house, and it was funny because they wouldn't get stuff consistently. So like I have like a really good run of the Frank Miller Daredevil stuff that I bought like off the shelf, but there's a couple issues missing because they just didn't get them at the yeah. <laughs> at the thing. Um, and so like I like same thing that with like still happens. Secret Wars, Crisis on Infinite Earths, like like those those that era of comics, uh, the Chris Claremont X-Men stuff, the first run of New Mutants, like that's when I was hot and heavy and it was like 6th, 7th, 8th grade for me. Um, and then, you know, I, I had a friend who was a big comic guy. And so we would buy them and then like trade and like read each other's and so on and so forth. Now that said, I never took care of my comics appropriately. My comics are, I still have them, but they are, shall we say, well loved. And in addition to that, I had, I think that's the right way to live though. My uncle, uh, my uncle, when he was a kid was a big comic guy. My grandma gave me all of his comics from the 1950s and 60s. So I've got uh, the best one she gave me was an X-Men number 10, which was the first appearance of Kazar. And it was in terrible, terrible shape. But I still had it, you know, (laughs) but I've got a lot of old like 50s and 60s Superman stuff, Archie stuff, a lot of like Sergeant Rock army things, you know, Um, a lot of like old gold key comics and stuff like that. And again, None of them probably worth a dime, but like right. treasures to me. And yep. I've always meant to like go back and board and bag them. And I never have like, they're just like, you know, in boxes down in my basement still. I, I'm kind of jealous of the people that don't board and bag. Like, cause I do. And if I want to read one, I got to take it out, undo the tape, read it very gently and put it with books, with novels, I don't do that. I've been the cover back. I just want to be as comfortable as possible right. while reading that book. And then when I'm done, the book has all this beautiful wear on it that reminds me of the time spent. And I think I'd prefer to be that way with comics. It's like, oh, the, the cover's coming off a little. Let me, you know, but uh, I'm not. Um, yeah, and so- of course, in the same way, the, my comics aren't worth jack, you know? Yeah. I might, I like have the first appearance of um iron heart and oh. i don't think that's worth anything <laughs> but <laughs> i have it it is it's just fun to have and it's fun to go back and, yeah. and look through them and so on and so i was really like i knew a lot at a certain point about comics lore and the interconnected ways they all you know like because it is one big like the mcu it's one big universe yeah. and they'll cross over into each other all the time you know way more than the movies do um so I kind of wish they didn't. It used to piss me off. I'd be reading Miles Morales and then all of a sudden some shit would happen. And I'm like, yeah, but what about what was happening with Miles? And they would just, he would go on some other adventure and it pissed me off. Yeah, in some other comic and you'd have to go find that to like yeah, see what the hell happened. Like, yeah. <laughs> yep. Good fun. All right. Anyhow, I was just curious if, if you were if you were a comic guy. I also yeah. wanted to ask you a little bit uh, about... Uh, your parenting style. We were we were talking about the mom, <laughs> okay, and yeah, like her, like it's worth it to take risks. Uh, view of the world, you know, for her son. Um, I wanted to know if if you shared that approach 
to parenting or if you were like a, a protective Ooh. parent are you somewhere in between so, like we've, we've talked about question. our childhoods and how we could just run around and do whatever right but like right i'm it's a different era it's a different era it's a different time you know and so i was curious about how you handle that sort of thing. i oh like because if i if i'm elijah's mom I'm like, no, stay in the house, right? She's a much better parent than me. Because <laughs> she's like, I want you to cross the street every day and go get your comic, you know, and does that so that he's not afraid, gives him incentive. Because you can't, you can't live in fear. Um, because at the end of the day, you're going to die at some point anyway. But I don't know that I could be that strong. And there's times where I'm, I remember myself riding my bike from one side of town to the other to go to the mall. And I'm like, huh, I don't know if I could let, I don't know. Like we live in this era now and I don't know that it's necessarily different as much as it's, we're more aware of what's going on I think because of the it. 24 hour news cycle that's it. and the social internet, media. The internet has like kind of fucked up parenting a little bit because you have yeah. this constant feed of horror coming into you yes. from all directions <laughs> and it makes everything seem immediate. Like when you were a kid, you got a half hour of local news and a half hour of national news. And if somebody like was doing a murder in St. Louis, you did not know. You didn't know right. that that horrible thing happened in St. Louis. But now you know everything that happens everywhere all the time. Like it's just constantly like coming in. And so it does make the world feel like way more dangerous than it probably really is. Like, of course, horrible things happen to people. And of course, you know, like children are mistreated and bad stuff goes right. on. But like it makes it feel so much more immediate all the time. And so I'm the same as you. Like, it's like. Uh, no hell no my kid's not riding their bike across <laughs> like, absolutely <laughs> right? not but it's kind of created the situation where i think my kids are maybe more timid like they're not free range i like my older boys i remember one time we took them camping and i was like you guys can just run around the campground like you can just go like just go explore find the playground yeah. find where the bathrooms are find the showers go look around and they're just like nope like <laughs> we're gonna sit here with you and i'm like but you can you can go like you can, and, and, but I had trained them that they don't go, you know? And so, yeah. Yeah. And my dad was definitely the opposite. We were very much just kind of like we had room to get into trouble. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, and we did. Yeah. yeah like <laughs> definitely got into trouble. I horrify my parents sometimes when I, when I tell them about some of the stuff that we did as kids, you know, like, because yeah, any, anything you could think of to try, we were out there trying it like just yeah bad but also very freeing and i learned a lot of lessons from those experiences right like now i know that you can set the swimming pool on fire like ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes <laughs> anyhow okay i was i was kind of curious about uh, my son is also smarter than i was as a kid yeah like that's the other thing he's like uh, he uh, he has no desire to set the driveway on fire like I did. Yeah. Uh, he just uh, doesn't interest him. So <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. Of course, I set my driveway on fire. I set the neighbor's driveway on fire. I went over to my friend's house and set their driveway on fire. <laughs> yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, good times. All right. You got any other questions for us? No, that was it. No, I, we covered everything else like during the uh, during the actual chat. So I think uh, I think we're in good shape on Unbreakable. I think we agree it is a 
Oh, it is a timeless classic to be treasured. It's better than I remember. And I loved. don't. This is going to be one like I'm. I, I'm taking the Eric approach to ranking this season, where I'm. I'm just ranking as we go, um, because one, there aren't as many movies, um, but I. I it's already I, hard. It's already yeah. Hard, yeah. I, it's like these are two absolute stunners of a films, like, and I. I don't know what to tell you. Wide awake just, and praying with anger are easy. Uh, <laughs> that's easy, right? They don't. They they don't. They we've done what four movies proper, yeah. And the gap in quality is so huge between one half and the other, right? You know, insane. Well, yeah. I mean, like M Night, M Night did a David Dunn. He accepted who he is and uh, <laughs> came into his powers. <laughs> I do have this interesting quote that I, maybe we could wrap with this. Um, it says that uh, it's normally attributed to Nelson Mandela, but it was actually written by Marianne Williamson in her book, Return to Love. So it says, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, and fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Which I love it. I think it's perfect for this movie because David, yeah. like, you know, he is afraid to be who he is. He needs convincing, you know, and uh, once he is convinced, it's a whole different ballgame. Yeah, uh, I agree. So that's going to do it for Unbreakable. What what a day. Ah, I'm just going to revel in the goodness for the time being. Uh, but it is not over because next week's or in two weeks, we're going to watch signs, um, which is something that we both are. We stand by. A lot of people don't like the movie. We are not those people. No, we are not um, those people. Just we are not those people. So uh, I look forward to watching that. I'm so excited for the rest of the season. I'm having so much fun. So if you want to follow the show uh, further, you can do so on Twitter. I don't know how, though. Oh yeah, no okay. Clue. I'll change that. I'll change. I'll have it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Look at the show notes. Yeah. Uh, but also, you go to chronologically.net if you want to check out the listen on your web browser or whatever. We have that URL. That's ours. Um, uh, you can follow Eric on Twitter at Eric underscore Hotter. I'm at Podcast by Jeff. Uh, you can check out his YouTube page, Eric Hotter, and uh, GamingNexus.com for all your gaming review needs as well as my other podcast, The Movie Draft House, um, that also has a YouTube channel. So if you search Movie Draft House on YouTube, you can see my stupid face. Oh, excellent. And I think that's it. Yeah, that sounds like it. Well done, We'll see sir. you in two weeks. See you in two weeks. Bye Thank all. you. <laughs> Bye.